are listening to the Classic Sermons Podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. You will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival sermons from great preachers of the past. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. Romans chapter number one, if your Bible is open, please, and verse number one. I'd like to speak to you from this verse for this chapter for a moment today. I'd like to use as a text and a climax for the message, verses 14 and 15, the three great and 16, the three great I am's of the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter number one, the text, verses 14, 15 to 16, I am a debtor, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise, and as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are Rome also, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believe it, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The three I am's are the apostle. But in verse 1 of Romans 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called an apostle from my mother's womb, he says in his epistles, and we would not doubt that at all. Ordered of God, planned of God, destined of God, and apostle. The two words to me are in italics. They were supplied by the translators. You could drop those two words out and do verse 1, no violence. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called an apostle. Not to me, which would imply that uh, he became an apostle. But God ordered that he... Be, apostle, be an apostle. God ordained that he be an apostle. Paul was born to be an apostle. And so actually you can leave the two words out and get uh, maybe a clearer meaning. Call an apostle separated unto the gospel. It was ordained of God that he be separated unto the gospel. Here is one man uh, that could never have been a lawyer, uh, who could have never been a physician, uh, who could have never been a businessman because he was called and separated unto the gospel of God from his very birth. And I, this is one of the reasons I sincerely believe Paul to be the twelfth apostle to take the place of Judas who lost his bishopric. Uh, not, uh, not Matthias, uh, with all due respect to Matthias, but rather Paul was God's ordained man predetermined to be that twelfth apostle of our Lord Jesus. Now, the gospel of God in verse 1 to me is a very important uh, statement that I want you to consider for a moment. The gospel of God. The word gospel means the good news of God. And the only message in the world that has the note of good news is the gospel of God. If you knew the, uh, the gospel pagan religions, and I use the word gospel in quotation mark, you'd find out that the word gospel just doesn't fit the theology of paganism. Because there's no good news about pagan gods. Their gods uh, bring fear and torment and death and destruction. But the gospel of God is good news indeed that in the grace of God there's hope and salvation whosoever will. The gospel of God we concern ourselves with uh, when we preach Calvary and the Lord Jesus. And when we engage in missions around the world, we are, uh, uh, we are there, there, there with uh, directly related to the gospel of God. Now, there are five things about the gospel of God in the next verses I'd like for you to note. 
They are tremendous sayings that describe more fully what the gospel of God really involves. Number one, uh, which gospel he had promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, which is to say that the gospel of God is not altogether a New Testament reality. Uh, the gospel is, uh, is uh, folded or enfolded in the Old Testament and unfolded in the New Testament. But the gospel of God in both the Old and New Testament remains the same. Uh, the mystery of it is that God was in Christ Jesus, reconciling the world unto himself. Though the Lord Jesus is not spelled out and identified uh, clearly in the Old Testament, yet in typology and in symbolism, in every book, in almost every chapter, in all the Old Testament, we see the Lord Jesus Christ in typology and in symbolism. And so I say to you that the prophets in the Holy Scriptures promised the gospel, so said Paul, and that ought to make the gospel more attractive to you, more authoritative to you. When you read uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, don't ever come up with the idea that uh, these disciples now devise for themselves a new religion. Or they devise for themselves a new gospel. Actually, the gospel of those four books is exactly the same thing as the gospel in the Pentateuch, the first five books in the Bible. Uh, the prophets before time promised and set forth in the Holy Scriptures the gospel of God. And then number two in verse three, which gospel concerns his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. The gospel is vitally related to uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. The very idea of a gospel uh, divorced from Jesus would be absurd and ridiculous. The very idea of a gospel without Calvary would be absurd and ridiculous. The two are related together. The very fact that we have a Calvary, the very fact that we have a Son, makes the gospel of God the gospel indeed concerning his Son, Jesus Christ. The things that he taught, the life that he lived, the miracles that he performed, the death that he died, the resurrection that he enjoyed, the ascension that he uh, experienced, all of that is related to the gospel of God because the gospel of God concerns Jesus Christ, our Lord. I become saddened in my heart when I hear of religious leaders in our day who talk with glowing terms about God and yet conspicuously omit and neglect and sidetrack His Son, the Lord Jesus. Now I say to you, there is no gospel except that gospel concerned Calvary and concerned Jesus and become concerned about His death, His burial, and His resurrection. You take those elements away from the gospel, you have an empty shell, a tinkling cymbal, and a sounding brass. We'll not sing too oft times by the horn, the old rugged cross. That's for sure. We'll not sing too oft times at Calvary years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not that my Savior was crucified. We'll not sing that too often, not at all, because the gospel concerns Jesus Christ and His work, His life, His death, His burial, and His resurrection. Now, number three in verse number four, this gospel declares Jesus to be the Son of God with power. Now, what's that? The gospel concerns Jesus Christ, and the gospel declares Him to be the Son of God with power. With no uncertain terms, the gospel declares Jesus to be the Son of God with power. 
Can you imagine the gospel without a Calvary? Can you imagine the gospel without shed blood? Can you imagine the gospel without the words of Jesus and the works of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus? I couldn't imagine a gospel without Jesus and all that he set forth to me in the four gospel stories. And the gospel declares him to be the Son of God with power. Note that last uh, uh, term, with power, you see, which is to say that all the miracles are not too far out nor impossible to believe, because Jesus is declared to be the Son of God with power. Every miracle is a demonstration of His power. He is very God, complete God. With Him nothing is impossible. Every miracle that He performed was in the realm of possibility, and other miracles He's able to perform even in our day. Declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of Holiness, by the chief miracle of all of his life, the resurrection from the dead. Now, how can a man deny that Jesus is the Son of God in the face of the resurrection? The best established fact in ancient history, by the way, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we didn't have, didn't have the Bible to teach the resurrection, we would know from secular history that a man called Jesus of Nazareth walked out of the grave uh, there in Jerusalem of that ancient day. And this is the climax of all of his miracles. Every miracle, demand, a miracle demanded power. And all the miracles were done in his might, in his strength, in his power. But the crowning work of all of his miracles was the day that he walked out of that grave and strapped the keys of death and hell at his side and declared to John, in the Revelation, I am he who was alive and who was dead and am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and hell. And so he's declared to me the Son of God with power. Now we that worship him as that are not wrong at all. The liberals and the modernists say, you Baptist people make an idol out of Jesus when you worship him. Well, my soul, when he walked out of that grave, Victor, what else could we do except drop on our knees and declare him to be the Son of God with power? No man could do that. No other person has ever duplicated that. Therefore, I, did, I, I deduct that the only God-man that could walk out of the grave was Jesus Christ or Nazareth. And since he walked out of the grave, I declare him to be the Son of God with power. And he is the Son of God. And that gospel of God uh, involves that, you see. There can be no gospel apart from that fact. And number four in verse five, the gospel of God, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith of all nations for his name. In other words, in this gospel, I have received grace. In this gospel, and because of this gospel, and by he who is the author of this gospel, I have received grace, eternal life. I have received apostleship. It's all in the economy of God. The same God that sent His Son Jesus to die called Paul to be an apostle from his mother's womb, which is the sovereign God of our son's lesson that we've been studying for the past few weeks. The God of Esther, the God of Mordecai, the same God uh, whose hand of providence we clearly see in our Sunday school lessons. We have that in verse number five. By that God we have received grace. By that God we have received apostleship. 
Amen. God has a plan. God has a purpose. Now, as far as Washington is concerned, we may not be worth hardly a number in those big computers in Washington. And we may be only a number as far as the computers are concerned. But I want you to know that the great God of heaven knows me by name. And he knows something about me, many things, in fact, about me that no computer could ever know. He knows the number of hair that I have in my head. He knows my rising up. He knows my sitting down. He knows every thought that races through my mind. I don't have to tell God where I'm at. He knows where I'm at. I don't have to beckon to God and say, Hey, God, here I am. He knows where I am. I get lost sometimes, but he's never been lost. Nor has one of his children ever been lost. If you belong to God, you couldn't get lost, you see, because his eyes upon the sparrow, and I know that he watches me. Now, by him, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience. Now, the reason I have this grace and apostleship is for obedience to the faith among all nations in His name. In other words, to enjoy this grace and apostleship obligates me to be obedient to the faith. I have no choice but to tell the story. I have no choice but to tithe the income. I have no choice but to support the missionaries. I have no choice but to pray for the missionaries. I have no choice but to be morally obligated to get the gospel out around the world. That's why I'm saved. So says verse 5, we have received the grace and apostleship. Why? For obedience to the faith. You couldn't be obedient to the faith without grace and a call. But if you've got grace, saving grace, and a call from God, that grace and call is for obedience to the faith. So we, uh, we, don't, we don't live our lives by the way we may choose to live. We live as He chooses for us. Whatever He says, I'll, uh, whatever He says, I'll do. Whatever He says, I'll go. If God says, go to the mission field, then I'll not balk, I'll not object, I'll not uh, refuse, I'll go. By the goodness of God and the grace of God, I'll go. Whatever He says, I'll do. That's why young people step forward. They have grace and apostleship. And that grace and apostleship is for obedience to the faith. It's not for you to sit down and tell your grandchildren. That's good to tell your grandchildren that you're a preacher. It's good to tell your grandchildren that you're a missionary. It's good to tell your grandchildren that you're saved. But that's not why you've got it. Not at all. I'm glad you have salvation. But the salvation, the grace we have, is unto obedience to the faith. And the last one of us are drafted into God's army. We're commissioned by the captain of our salvation to occupy ourselves day by day in telling the story. We serve God full-time. Every one of us saved are full-time workers at the task of the gospel. Now, you have to work at the plant uh, to provide shelter for your family and for yourself. But you only work at the plant incidentally. Working at the job is only incidental and coincidental. But the main purpose and the main direction of your life is unto obedience to the faith, you see. And to have money to eat and uh, with and to sleep uh, with and to uh, uh, enjoy the necessities of life by. But those things keep me alive that I might be obedient unto the faith. Grace and apostleship 
requires action. Faith without works is dead being alone. You tell me that you're saved, let me see your works, and then I'll know it. I'll accept your testimony at face value. The moment you tell me I'm saved, I'll believe you at face value. But when I see your works, I can be sure that what you testify is right, you see. We must work, and we do work. Those that are saved work because it's unto obedience to the faith. Then number five, in verse six, it says, Among whom also uh, we are also the call of Jesus Christ. Now that's involved in the gospel. We are the call of Jesus Christ. We are a peculiar and a particular people. I don't think the body of Christ is by accident, and you don't either. We believe the body of Christ, which is the church, the bride, is a particular body and a particular group, a select group. I think God foreordains you and I being in that body, and He in His mercy calls you and me. And as a result of that call, a personal call, now my mother and daddy had a call to salvation, but I had one too. And your neighbors had a call to salvation, but you had one too. And the reason you're born again and converted is because of that personal invitation you had from God. We are the call of Jesus Christ our Lord. Now that involves the gospel. Now you not know that call apart from hearing the gospel. If you happen to believe in one whom, in whom they've not heard, uh, Roman tells us in chapter number 10, you see. If you do not know your call except you hear the gospel. But if you're called of God and selected of God, when you hear the gospel, you'll know it. You'll know then. You have an affinity for it. And you'll believe it. And you'll become converted. And you'll move out uh, under faith and obedience to the glory of Jesus our Lord. Now, in verse 7 and following, uh, Paul makes mention of his uh, concern about the people in Rome, the church in Rome, the believers, beloved of God, they're called in verse 7. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called saints, called to be saints by grace, grace unto you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say in verse 8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. What about that? What a testimony for a local church to enjoy, to have the faith of a local congregation spoken of throughout all the world. I, I read in, uh, in, uh, in the uh, history of Baptist, uh, our textbook we use in our Bible college, that when Paul lived, there was probably as many as 54 congregations of believers in the city of Rome. The city of Rome is one of the oldest uh, cities in the world by one of the three oldest cities in the world. Damascus, Jerusalem, and Rome are the three oldest cities in the world. Older than New York, older than Tokyo, older than London, older than Paris. In fact, these three cities are 3,000 years old and older. The oldest of the three, Damascus, Syria. And in the city of Rome, a good-sized city, no doubt, when Paul lived 2,000 years ago, Rome was 1,000 years old when Paul lived. A thousand years old when Paul lived, you see. And in that city in his life, there were 54 congregations of baptized, born-again believers. And he says, 
your faith, your faith is spoken of throughout the whole known world. Now, the known world of Paul's day was the Mediterranean area. Around the Mediterranean, but down into North Africa, and as far east as India. We read, by the way, in our Sunday school lesson today about India and Ethiopia, 500 years before Christ. And so Paul's day, uh, the known world was that area about the Mediterranean and some parts of Africa and uh, Europe. And throughout all that area, your faith is spoken of. How would that be said about Tabernacle as a local assembly? It ought to be. We ought to have a reputation of people of faith, people of like precious faith, people of missionary fervency and zeal, people of separation from the things of the world, people of fundamental, basic philosophy who stand for the Bible without any argument, without any controversy, without any contradiction. We are fundamentalists, and we want that reputation to get out in all the world. We do uh, occupy ourselves with mission. We want that to get out. We do have a congregation faithful and obedient to the faith. We want that to get out. But here's a church in the ancient world that was known throughout all the known world because of what they were. Verse 9, For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. What a prayer warrior he must have been. No wonder Paphroditus is a great prayer warrior that we saw in the book of Colossians. As a constant companion of Paul the Apostle, who himself said without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers. Which is to say, at the time I get up on my knees to pray, I pray for the church at Rome. Every time you get up on your knees to pray, you ought to pray for the church at Tabernacle. Every time you pray. Every time. I couldn't conceive of a deacon of our church praying secretly except you pray for Tabernacle. I couldn't conceive of a Sunday school teacher praying except they pray for Tabernacle. Oh, I don't mean uh, if you pray in a public prayer, but I mean when you pray secretly. Certainly in your secret uh, prayers you think about your pastor. In your secret prayers, you think about your Sunday school teacher. In your secret prayers, you think about our missionaries, and I'm so proud of every one of them. We're so glad to have Brother Fuller with us, and Jan is here today, and, and Brother Dan is here today. And these missionary workers were so proud and happy about every one of them. And every time we get up on our knees to pray, and by the way, Brother Blevins is here also, and Mrs. Blevins, they're going to Spain. Isn't that great? to be missionaries. Every time you get up on your knees to pray, you ought to pray for these missionaries, calling as many of them by name as you possibly can. God bless them, everyone. Amen. And by any means, now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to be able to come to you. Well, he had that journey. I wouldn't call it altogether prosperous. He had a lot of trouble getting to Rome. Shipwrecked, you remember? They thought they were all going to die in that storm that raged in Acts 27 for 14 days, but they finally made it. And when they landed in the Italian peninsula, they had to walk from the shore up to the city of Rome, but they finally made it. And Paul said, I've been praying that God would give me a, a prosperous journey by the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you. Watch that. I long to see you. 
Paul didn't have to say that. But he said it honestly. And the fact that he said it is honest as far as I'm concerned. I long to see you. I want to be among you. I want to be with you. You're my brother, my sister in the Lord. You're my sons in the gospel. And I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts to the end that you might be established. And those spiritual gifts are this book. I want to preach the book to you that you might become established by the Word of God. That is, that I may may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. And now, I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes our purpose to come to you, but was hindered uh, hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentile people. And I hear my text. I want you to underscore these three I am's. I am a debtor. In verse 15, I am ready. In verse 16, I am not ashamed. First, I am a debtor, said Paul. I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise, both to the Gentile and the Jew. I'm a debtor to all the human family. To get the gospel of the grace of God to that human family, I am responsible. Now I want to say that tabernacle is none less a debtor. I have a duty. I have a responsibility. I have an obligation to tell the story around the world. I have an obligation to tell the message of of the gospel to heathen people. I have an obligation to tell the message of the gospel to Greenville and to South Carolina. I marvel at, at, uh, at, at my own state. I feel a debt to my own native state. I'm a native-born South Carolinian. Many of you are not, but I was born in the state. And I feel an obligation to South Carolina. I preached Friday night and, and uh, last night in a church down at Prosperity in Newberry County, right in the very seat of the thickest Lutheran concentration I know of in the South. Newberry College is a Lutheran college. And in Newberry County, in Lexington County, there's more Lutherans than there are Baptists by far. And Prosperity, South Carolina, is not a large city. I would say a thousand people, maybe. Probably not over that. But there has not been a Baptist church in that city as far back as I can remember until now. As far as I know, the only city in South Carolina without one Baptist church is Prosperity, South Carolina. Turn the arrow. But ten years ago, a young man went to Prosperity and built a church. And I had the joy of preaching there last night and the night before. And my soul bounded up within me to know that God had sent a young man to prosperity. And they had a congregation among those Lutherans. God had saved some people and brought them into that boy's fellowship. And now they have a thriving, local, independent Baptist church in the city that had been marked off by Southern Baptists as impossible. I mean, all my life, there had never been a Baptist church in that city. Well, I have a debt. I fell a debt. And when that debt was paid... By that church being there, I felt so good about it. And then I sometimes on my knees thank God for Tabernacle 
and for the radio outreach that we have in my native state. I am a debtor to South Carolina. I'm a debtor to all the world, but I'm a debtor to my state. And our, our Braxman, our program, and the Tabernacle Hour uh, goes out over about ten stations in South Carolina every day. And about half of those carry the Sunday program that I'm now broadcasting. And I marvel at that, that uh, the, the Braxman message, the Tabernacle message, can go into Humble's homes. Uh, some of you ought to visit all of South Carolina before you make any trip out of the state. And once you visit in the some years of our state, you can understand more what I'm saying than you can understand now. But the voice of the gospel goes in uh, through those radio stations, some eight or ten of them in my state, every day and every Lord's day. And when I think of that upon my knees, it warms my heart because I feel that I'm a debtor to South Carolina in a peculiar way. I preached last night, and I told the people, uh, just a few miles across uh, Lake Murray, on the other side, the Lexington County side, there's a hilltop, and on that hilltop my granddad is buried. I said if I was a thousand feet in the air, I could probably see the graveyard where my granddad is buried. Not over 25 miles away, I guess, or less. And I, I, feel, I feel obligated. I'm a debtor. Not only to South Carolina, primarily, basically, because of the power of the flesh, I'm a debtor to my native state to get the gospel out. But I'm also equally a debtor to all the world to get the gospel. I'm a debtor to every man. That doesn't mean that I owe him money, but I owe him the opportunity to hear the gospel that converted me and called me and saved me from the ruin of sin. And you're a debtor also. And you'll not discharge that debt nor that obligation any other way except you support the gospel message. And then Paul said, I am ready, in verse 15. What a tremendous statement that is. I am ready. I'm ready to preach the gospel to you that are Rome. I'm ready to preach the gospel to you that are in Greenville. I'm ready to go where God would have me go, when God would have me go. I'm ready to be what God would have me be. And I'm ready to give what God would have me give. I'm ready. Paul said, you open the door, Lord. I'll step in. He prayed earlier in this chapter, I have prayed earnestly that nothing would hinder me from coming to you at Rome. I'm ready to come, said Paul. I'm ready to come. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to do God's will. Now, that first I am, I am a debtor, naturally carries the second I am ready. How many of us recognize that our debtor, our debt, can now say I'm ready to discharge that duty. I'm ready to pay that debt. I'm ready to do what God would have me do, whatever it may be. Maybe in this local church, there's a task, a responsibility. Maybe in South Carolina, there's a task and a responsibility. Maybe on the mission field, there may be a door, an effectual door. I don't know. But are you ready? I don't think the world ought to tie you down. I certainly don't think money ought to tie you down. I don't think a job ought to tie you down. I think you ought to be willing to cut loose from family, from job, from social uh, contacts, and lay everything in your life on the altar to do the will of God. And sometimes it costs a great deal. 
The more involved you become with the world, the less apt you are to be ready. I sometimes thank God that He called me as a poor boy. I mean, as far as money is concerned. I had nothing. I didn't have to give up anything. I hear these boys talk about how much they gave up to be a preacher, and I just have to listen because I can't testify like that. I didn't give up anything. God gave me everything I've got. And I didn't give up anything. No. I don't I sometimes wonder if I if I had enough grace then to have given up some things that some people say they've given up to be a Christian or to be a preacher. I hope I have that much grace. I think I have that much grace, but I didn't have to give up anything. Didn't have anything to give up when God called me. Every once in a while a preacher boy will come to town and I go and talk to us about coming to school and I inquire about his job and some of them make fifteen thousand dollars a year. And some make more. And I say to myself, Oh boy, if you make it it'll be a miracle. If you make it, it'll be a miracle. And the reason I say that is because you're making too much money. And there's not many men willing to step down from twenty thousand or fifteen thousand and I've never made $15,000 a year in my life. And there's not many men that's willing to step down to a $10,000 salary or $5,000 salary. And some of these missionaries get less than that. And not many men are willing to do that. Just this is not willing to do it. And not many uh, candidates' wives are willing to do it either. You'd be surprised how many men do what their wives will let them do. And I agree that you're responsible to your wife. And I agree she ought to be uh, at least sympathetic with what you're doing. I, I don't think you do what you ought to do if your wife is not sympathetic. But there's not many women willing to be a preacher's wife with a salary of 125 a week. Not many. Not in these days of inflation. And consequently, some of those boys that come here to go to school don't last long because they're not willing to cut loose. I've known preachers all my lifetime that had potential doors they could have enjoyed, but they had too much sideline business. It's too much money coming in from center automobiles or trading uh, this or that. They got a job on the side, and they won't cut that job loose. And they're, they're, they're disqualified. They're hindered. I wonder how many of us are ready to pay the price, to do the thing God wants us to do, whatever it may be. God help us not to live for self. God help us to live for Jesus. This gospel that brought grace and apostleship is unto obedience to the faith. And if you've got grace, then you're obligated to be obedient to the faith. Whatever that call may be, all of us must be ready. Paul said, I'm ready. I'm ready to preach the gospel at whatever cost it may be. And then number three in verse 16, he said, I am not ashamed. I am a debtor. I am ready. And now number three, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Because it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now that's not to say that you'll never be tempted to be ashamed. That's one of the problems all of us face. I've faced it. Uh, in my life, uh, many a time, uh, the devil tempts me to be ashamed of my calling. The devil tempts me to be ashamed of my preaching. 
The devil tempts me to be ashamed of the gospel. The devil tempts me to be ashamed of Jesus. And I wouldn't be all surprised if all of us, sometimes or another, are not tempted to be ashamed. All of us have that problem. But I want to say this to you, and I say it as honestly as I know how. I would love the opportunity of standing before a TV camera if I knew everybody in the world was listening and say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I'm one of His own. I'd love to say that to the world if I know my heart. I want everybody in Greenville to know that. I am not ashamed. I'm sometimes tempted to be, but I am not ashamed of the gospel. If, if the law, for example, to walk into this building today and say, you, a preacher, step forward, you're going to jail. You think I'd run from that? No. I'd step forward and say, I'm the pastor. I'll lead the procession. I'd be glad to do that. I'm not ashamed. Now, I'm tempted sometimes, and you're tempted sometimes. And when the devil tempts you to be ashamed of the gospel, tell the old devil to let you alone. Tell him you know who he is. Tell him you know what a rascal he is. And tell him you know who you are and what you are for him to go on to hell where he belongs. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed, and neither are you. And Paul said, I'm not. Every time Paul stood before Agrippa and Felix and Festus and Caesar... He sees that opportunity to say, wait a minute, let me tell you about the experience I had down here at Damascus in Syria. He told him how he got converted. And at the time I have an opportunity, I'd like to say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Now, in some circles, uh, that's treason to be identified with lowly believers. The elite and the sophisticated why they say, I'd never stoop that low. Well, you can call it stupid if you may, but as far as I'm concerned, I'm in the greatest company on God's earth. The company of the born again. If that's treason, then I'm guilty. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Now, the reason I'm not ashamed of it is because the gospel is the power of God. Now, the Greek word translated power in our King James Bible is the word we get our word dynamite from. The word dynamite is not a translation, but a transliteration. So in the original, it says, for it is the dynamite of God. The gospel is the dynamite of God under everyone that believes it. And you know, I believe that. I, I always have believed that. And I still believe that. I believe, though my voice is weak and feeble, though my ability is limited, I yet believe that I handle dynamite. Amen. And there's something about the gospel that can blast the devil out of people. For it's the power of God, the dynamite of God under salvation. Don't you accept what Jesus said when God said, My word does not return to be void? He said, You cast it upon the waters, it'll return. You sow it in the ground, it'll bring forth the harvest. Amen. I believe that. We don't sometimes see the harvest as magnitude as we'd love to. 
But that harvest is bound to come. If you sow the seed, it's bound to come. It's dynamite. And something happens when the gospel is preached. And there's no other message in the world that has that dynamite element except the gospel. Thank you for listening to the Classic Sermons podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. To listen to many more powerful sermons, visit our website, PreachTheBible.org. If you enjoy Christian music and programming, visit KNBBC.com for Christian music you can trust.